Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome to the show. My name's Mel Fulton and I am absolutely delighted to bring you another edition of Triple R's premiere and only book show. How cool, how exciting. I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation um, and to Bunjil, the great creation spirit. The Colonial Project is an ongoing one, but this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today, huge show, always a huge show, but I'm particularly excited uh, to be welcoming Anna-Kate Blair, author of the fantastic debut novel The Modern, to the show. The Modern takes a look at art, desire and precarity in the 21st century and asks what it means to be your authentic self today. Also on the show, are you an autistic woman or gender diverse writer? Because Clem Basto wants you to submit your words to a new anthology that will be published by UQP. And they're coming on the show to tell you all about it, so that's very exciting too. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It is my great pleasure to introduce to the show our first guest for today. Anna-Kate Blair is a writer from New Zealand, currently living in Melbourne. She holds a PhD in History of Art and Architecture from the University of Cambridge and has worked in the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Her debut novel, The Modern, is set in the world of MoMA and is a clever and wry exploration of art, desire and millennial precarity. Her lead character, Sophia, is smart, serious, refined and successful, and yet never quite feels like she's in control of her life. In fact, she hardly seems like she's a reliable witness to it. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you very much for having me, Mel. It's a great pleasure. Anna, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your lead character, Sophia? Who is she? Where do we find her when we open the novel? So Sophia is an art historian. She's done a PhD looking at women in abstract expressionism and particularly the painter Grace Hartigan, then has a two-year fellowship at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in the Department of Painting and Sculpture. At the beginning of the novel, she sort of has six months left in her contract. She's also living with her boyfriend, who she's been with for a number of years in Manhattan's East Village. And at the beginning of the novel, he's just finished his PhD and has been submitting job applications. And she's sort of panicking about the fact that she has six months left in her contract and should be submitting job applications, but hasn't really started doing that yet. And then they sort of accidentally become engaged the night before he leaves to hike the Appalachian Trail. And so she starts kind of spending her time thinking about that instead of her job applications and then meets a bridal store assistant who is also an artist and becomes infatuated with her and then has even more to think about instead of her future. There's loads of stuff to unpack there, but I love that kind of term of like accidentally becoming engaged. And like you said, Robert, her partner, heads off for basically the duration of the book from that critical point. Sophia is continuing her work. She's obsessed with this woman. She's wondering what it means to be engaged in the modern world. And 
particularly to be like a bisexual woman who is engaged in a heterosexual relationship and what that means for her. Can you tell us a little bit about that tension and why it's so interesting and and important, I think, to explore, you know, sexuality and visibility in this book? Yeah, so Sophia's sort of always seen herself as bisexual, but she's kind of a quiet character in general, I think. She spends a lot of time thinking and as a result never gets around to actually doing or saying anything. And because of that, her own bisexuality isn't very visible, but she also doesn't like that the default assumption is that she's straight just because she's in a relationship with a man. And I think she's sort of caught between the way she wants the world to see her or the way she sees herself and kind of her actual feelings toward people and what kind of makes her happy or what might make her happy. She's not quite sure how to negotiate that question of who she is as opposed to what she wants. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's really interesting to explore those kinds of themes within the backdrop of an art museum. You worked at Momite yourself. The book is set there. You know, Sophia is this kind of delightfully, like highly intelligent, deeply in her head, quite passive character in a lot of ways. And we learn a lot about her through her exploration of art and of her subjects. We might not necessarily hear her personal story, but we'll hear a little anecdote about Grace Hardigan's journey, for example, that'll illuminate it for us. Tell us about setting the book there. What were the challenges? What were the delights? I wanted it to be that Sophia is kind of processing her own life through her relationship to art, but also that she has this very kind of intimate, everyday relationship to the objects in the museum and that she's not kind of coming at them as kind of an occasional visitor and she's not really always thinking about them academically. She's just kind of wandering around and seeing them as she goes about her life. But also in terms of her passivity, I think there's also an element in which she's kind of spent all these years training herself just to look at things and think about them as opposed to kind of training herself to create something or to take action in the world. That practice of looking or observing, she kind of takes it too far to some degree perhaps. I just want to say on that note, there's one of my favourite scenes in the book is this this fantastic scene where they're at a party and they're admiring this young woman's work who, who's a baker and they're talking about baking and they're talking about art and Sophia kind of divulges that she would prefer a cake that looked really beautiful to something that was really delicious and that feels like fundamental to her character and to her struggle in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. Like her concern with appearances, appearances obviously surface level, but also the surface to her is so central to her way of being in the world that just because it's surface level doesn't mean it's unimportant or superficial. Yeah, it's surface stuff that runs really deep. She's not a superficial person necessarily. She's just so completely consumed with looking at things and thinking about them. Yeah, I think that's a great description of her. So she accidentally kind of gets engaged to this partner and she's not sure where that goes. And then he disappears, which I think is extraordinary and and so interesting to me. And he's hiking the Appalachian Trail and kind of pondering, you know, narratives of nature and walking and how we move through them. And she's grappling with the uncertainty of like having this stellar contract that's just about to finish and not being sure what to do, planning for this kind of idea of a wedding, but at the same time not divulging to anybody that she is in fact engaged. It doesn't feel quite real to her. And then she meets this woman, Kara, in the wedding shop when she's shopping with her future mother-in-law. Tell us about Kara. 
So Kara is a young artist. She's only 22 and she's kind of in her final year of art school and is also working in a bridal shop. And I think for Kara, as well as Sophia, although in a different way, her interest in weddings is primarily aesthetic and she's also very concerned with surfaces. I mean, she's also 22. Mm. And so to Sophia, I think she also kind of represents youth and this idea of going back in time to like a point where the future doesn't feel so determined. She's also sort of a bit silly in the way that a lot of 22-year-olds are a bit silly. In terms of that, I kind of wanted to explore the way in which like often when we have like crushes on people, it's kind of a bit preposterous to everybody else why it is that we've chosen this one person to be kind of obsessed with. Yeah, there's a fair amount of projection or something involved there and it's an interesting way of exploring. This book is set pre-pandemic in, is it 2016? Yeah. Yeah, You know, Instagram is sort of very much a thing, but people are engaged with it in different ways. And it's a really interesting look at that and the way people use social media and the way people build narratives around who people are and what they mean and how they can be and how we also relate to each other, which, you know, I really got a lot out of reading it that way. Can you tell us a bit about Grace Hardigan? Because I think that she is a really central character to this story in lots of ways. And she's somebody that I didn't know very much about at all. I'm a huge fan of Frank O'Hara, but I didn't know very much about Grace Hardigan. Can you tell us about her work and how she inspired this book? Yeah, so Sophia's relationship with Grace Hardigan and Grace Hardigan as a painter sort of goes well beyond what's actually in the book in that the book is kind of after she's done her PhD, so she's done all her kind of academic research, but Grace Hardigan is still kind of in her head, but now kind of just as like a figure in her life versus like, you know, someone she's writing an academic thesis about because she's already done that. So Grace Hardigan painted, her best known painting is called Grand Street Brides, which is this kind of haunted looking painting which is figurative but also sort of abstract and I mean I think that's something Grace Hartigan did quite well in terms of combining sort of the figurative with the abstract and it shows these mannequins or well perhaps they're mannequins it's sort of ambiguous in the window of a bridal shop when she was kind of writing in her diary because Grace Hartigan was also like a beautiful writer I kind of wonder what would have happened if Grace Hartigan wrote a novel but in her diaries she wrote when she was thinking about marriage that she paints things that she's against in order to make them wonderful. I also remembered while I was speaking that actually I think she said that in an interview, not her diaries. Anyway, she said and wrote a lot of beautiful things. But that idea of devoting your attention to something that you're kind of against in order to kind of make it into something beautiful, I found very interesting. And also I found the painting itself very compelling. I gave that to some degree to Sophia, although Sophia's interest in Grace Hardigan is much more extreme than my own. But also Grace Hardigan, um, she's Frank O'Hara's best friend. She was a very significant figure in um, abstract expressionism. Frank O'Hara wrote a beautiful poem about her called To Grace After a Party. Mm. And a quote referring to Grace Hardigan is actually on Frank O'Hara's tombstone. Yeah, so their friendship I also thought was really beautiful. And I kind of wanted to bring that into the book as well. I mean, you do bring so much into this book. I I was talking to you about this off air that the book has this incredible sort of lightness of touch, but it it deals with huge themes and it's very, very rich in its subject matter. You know, I got an education on Grace Hardigan, on Frank O'Hara, on Nancy Holt, on Sol Lewitt, on all these amazing kind of modern artists. Can you talk to us a little bit about your background in the arts and how you brought that in or how you moved to novelising them? 
So my own background in art history, like I studied art history, I did a PhD in history of art and architecture and worked at the Museum of Modern Art. But my own background is kind of in the politics of exhibitions and museum studies and architecture rather than painting or kind of post-war art. So it's a bit different, but I think my own kind of academic background is concerned with the politics of beauty and the ways in which sometimes we're aesthetically attracted to things that are maybe like politically questionable or lead us in directions that we don't want to go in or things which are explicitly kind of designed to do that. Yeah, and I'm very interested in kind of the politics of museums. But also I think I'm very interested in the ways in which we write about art. And I think while I was doing my PhD, I often felt like a bit disappointed that I would read these academic articles, which often had these really beautiful thoughts in them. And then I'd think, well, I'm probably one of only 20 people in the world who's read this article because people read it for work rather than for pleasure. And so with my own work, I wanted to write something that people would read for fun. Basically, like I just thought there are so many like beautiful things about thinking about museums and I didn't want those to be kind of reserved for an academic audience. I'm very interested in the idea of fiction as sort of a place where institutions can be critiqued or where more transparency about the nature of museums comes into it. And before I worked at MoMA, I I think when I was applying for the job, I remember thinking, if I don't get this job, then it's not like I can just read a novel to find out what it's like to work at MoMA. Mm. Like the only way I can find out is by getting this job and working there. And so I guess I kind of wanted to write a novel about working there so that getting a job there wasn't the only option if you wanted to know what that was like. Yeah, right. You had plans for the novel at the time that you were applying for these jobs. Like this was on the boiler in a way. Not really. I think I'm very attracted to these sort of prestigious institutions like Cambridge as well, where I went to graduate school. And I always just want to know what it's like to be there. But, you know, you you can't be inside every institution you're curious about. Yeah, like, I mean, I did get the job in the end, but before I got the job feeling like, oh, it's so unfair that, like, I have to get a job in order to know what it's like to be there. And then later on, when I did start writing the novel, that thought came back to me. But I, I wasn't thinking about it when I worked there. It's an interesting thing that, you know, these kind of hallowed institutions that, we, that exist largely in our imagination and that intimidate us hugely, but that also uplift us and illuminate our lives. And yet we don't necessarily bring them into the common parlance, like in the way that Sophia does. You know, she very much thinks about her life as entwined with art and reflects on it in that way. And I was trying to think about sort of similar novels or similar books that, that brought the same energy. And, you know, I thought about Siri Hustved and her beautiful writing or Olivia Lang, which is non-fiction, but The Lonely City and the way that she sort of talks about art in relation to how she unpacking that kind of concept of loneliness. I was just wondering what books sort of inspired you when you were writing this? So I think I was inspired by a lot of writing from the art world, like Lucy Lippard, Lucy Ives as well, wrote a novel called Impossible Views of the World, which is quite funny, which is set at a fictionalised version of the Met. And also, I mean, I think a lot of academic writing about museums inspired me. But then on the other side, literary writing that wasn't so connected to museums, like Elizabeth Hardwick's Sleepless Nights, that idea of this narrator just sort of making sense of the city and wandering through it and other novels by critics from like the 50s and 60s like Speedboat by Renata Adler yeah and then more recently I think Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Danler which also kind of has this sort of entrance to a closed world in the case of that novel it's the food world and restaurants in New York but it was the same kind of thrill for me 
you know, I've never worked at like a famous New York restaurant, but in reading that book, I can kind of feel like I'm there. It's such a big question because I feel like every book I've ever read in my life has like influenced my novel. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that you read and everything that you see and everything that inspires you is kind of fodder for this, isn't it? Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Anna, I wanted to talk to you about the milestone that is the sometimes fraught my, milestone that is turning thirty, and what it what it means in in the modern times, and what it means to your character Sophia in this book. When I was writing the novel, which was around the time that I turned 30, I was kind of thinking about the fact that often in these coming-of-age stories, it's sort of when you're about 18, but actually I feel like for a lot of people these days, it's even your 20s feel like you're still sort of figuring things out. Often people get to, or I did, and I think Sophia does, you get to about the age of 30 and you kind of think, like, is the stuff that I have been doing the stuff that, like, I want to be doing forever? Like, did I do it because I liked it in the moment or... Is it kind of the trajectory I want for my life? In my case, when I was working at MoMA, I was in my 20s. But for Sophia, working at MoMA, like when she's turning 30, she's pretty sure that is the trajectory that she wants for her life. You know, she's very indecisive about her like romantic relationships or rather her romantic relationships with people. But I think like the romantic relationship that she is definitely sure about is her relationship with modern art and with MoMA and with New York. But also I think her sort of insecurity about turning 30 is this idea that like she has to be exceptionally good when she's 30 if she wants to be successful in life. And that for her also reminds her of another line from Grace Hardigan's diaries where Grace Hardigan, upon turning 30, kind of wrote in her diary like time to begin to fulfil the promise. And Sophia kind of feels that way too, like all through her 20s. She's been doing a PhD at a prestigious institution. She has this fellowship at MoMA. It's all this early career stuff which pegs her as promising, but there are so many people who are promising and there isn't enough space in like an institution like MoMA for every single person who displays promise. I think that that's a fantastic juncture to kind of talk about status in this novel and that idea of promise and fulfilling it and what it means. And this is a young woman who has led, you know, to my mind, an extraordinarily successful life. Like she's jettisoned off from Australia as a young person. She's studied at these kind of decorated universities. She's got this job and she still feels completely you know, like she hasn't really got a firm ground to stand on, you know, everything still feels unsure. She knows what she wants, but she doesn't quite know. It's like this idea of you just have to be so, so good. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? You know, like the pressure of being a modern woman, like, and what that means to Sophia and what it means today? For Sophia, it's also this kind of thing that you can You can sort of know where you're going to some degree professionally in terms of like, in her case, she does a PhD and then she applies for a job. But also even at the same time you're doing that, like so much of it is luck. In the case of her position, it's like a thousand people apply for it and she gets it, but lots of other people who applied for it would be just as qualified and 
you know, sometimes with jobs like that, it just comes down to chance. Like they might want a person who's recently been studying a particular painter or they might want a person who speaks a particular language and that, you know, won't necessarily even be included in like the job advertisement but that'll be kind of what makes the decision. I think for Sophia and also for a lot of people today, there is this idea of, you know, however hard you work, like some of it is just luck because there are so many people who are brilliant and working extremely hard. The last question that I do want to ask you is, you know, the novel ends with this sort of delightful ambiguity, I think, and it's sort of shot through with a, with a kind of sadness or uncertainty. Can you project in your mind where, where Sophia is now? You know, the book set in 2016, it's now 2023. Is she okay? What's happening for her? I don't is it even know. our business, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't know, but also part of why I left it with that ambiguity is I don't want to be making guesses. Like I kind of feel like the way you view it probably depends on how optimistic or pessimistic you are as a person. There are different ways it could go. And yeah, I kind of want to leave that up to the reader. Yeah, that seems like a good a, a good way to do it, I think, a wise and kind way and a generous way. Anna Kate Blair, thank you so much for joining us on Literati Glitterati. Um, Anna's novel, The Modern, is out now. You should pick it up from an indie bookshop. You'll have a great time. It's a wonderful book. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It is time for me to introduce to you our esteemed second guest, Clem Bastow's debut non-fiction book, Late Bloomer, a memoir about being diagnosed with autism at 36, was published in July 2021. It boasts one of the most fantastic rainbow glitter covers getting around. Clem is, of course, one of the hosts of Superfluidy on Tuesdays at 8pm, and today they are here because they want you to write for them. Welcome to the show, Clem. Can you please talk to us about this fantastic project that you are working on with Joe Case? Yes, so me and my colleague Joe Case, we co-editing a collection of life writing by Australian autistic women and gender diverse people for UQP, for University of Queensland Press, and we're so excited about it. We've got a number of essays already in the pipe, but what we're really looking for is for people to submit. It's a great opportunity. You know, there isn't a lot of opportunities for autistic women and gender diverse people to do this type of writing. Uh, So it's a really great high profile project. And I'm really excited for people to respond creatively, which they have done already. You know, we've, we've had some amazing submissions and inquiries about, you know, different approaches to the brief, which is basically to write about how autism has shaped your identity and life. And it's just been incredible so far. But I know there's more people out there who would be just sitting on some amazing essays that they could submit. So we're really keen to get the word out. Yes, yes, we are definitely keen to get the word out. If you are somebody who is an autistic woman or a gender diverse person who is a writer or who would like to have a crack, you can submit your work to autismanthology2023 at gmail.com and you've got until the 8th of November to do so. Clem and Joe will be enthusiastically reading your words and, and hoping to compile them into this anthology. Clem, you are somebody who has written beautifully and with incredible nuance and joy and uh, all of the things about being an autistic person and about being diagnosed later in life. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about what the process of writing your wonderful book, Late Bloomer, was like? (laughs) 
I mean, my, my initial instinct is to say hell itself, but it's because <laughs> I was writing it during COVID. Look, it was a really interesting process. I feel like it was a chance to know myself, you know, more deeply than I had before. Obviously, the fact of diagnosis is a, is a, a kind of act of self-knowledge in and of itself, but to be able to go back over my life and kind of think about things through that prism of understanding was really valuable. And I sort of hope that that will be something that people who might be thinking of submitting to this anthology might also get to enjoy. And I think so far there's been some really interesting responses and it's not necessarily people writing about this is how I found out I was autistic or, you know, the kind of diagnosis journeys, which... I wrote one to an extent. Hannah Gadsby wrote one. Uh, Chloe Hayden's book has got a bit of that as well. And I think what's really cool is we're now kind of moving beyond that into this realm of a more focused autistic in nature, I guess, for people writing with real clarity about very specific ways that autism shapes their life rather than kind of framing it through that, that kind of medical model, which I guess has been a necessary part of the discourse for, for a while as people have kind of come to this renewed understanding of what autism is. It's a really exciting chance to kind of push beyond that clinical model into something more fully rounded, I guess. You've got about 15 seconds <laughs> to give us your hot pitch. What do people need to know? What do they need to do? They just need to write. And honestly, you don't have to be a professional writer. If you've published literally anything, that's fine. If you haven't, that's fine too. We're going to work with all of the writers to get their essays ready for publication. So it's an amazing opportunity for everyone. And, uh, and I think it will be a fantastic opportunity for readers too. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.